Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Yeah, hi, excuse me. I'm I'm chuckling at something I was just looking at on Twitter. It was, uh, you know, tell me something I don't know. So the guy, Michael Wolf, who's written these um, fun books about inside Trump's White House. They're fun because he's he's a bit of a sloppy journalist. So he he gets great quotes from people. You're not sure if he's making half of them up, but fun stuff. And he says, Wolf says <coughs> that over the course of writing two books, he has come to believe Trump is governing on, on impulse and whim. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to write two books to come up with that conclusion. And that there is no method to the madness. And that someone who is functionally a madman, that's what he says, functionally a madman is president of the United States. Yeah, we sort of came to that conclusion without having to write two books. Jeez. Yeah, and the madman is now over there in London embarrassing us. Uh, left, right, center. I mean, there, it just don't look. Don't look. I mean, it is cringe, obviously cringeworthy. Um, he's unbelievable. Damn it. Here I am talking about him. Uh, did you see what he... Before he got off Air Force One, I'm, you're probably way ahead of me, I'm sorry, but before he got off Air Force One, uh, he was tweeting, and um, let me find the exact, here he is. He decides that it would be a really good idea for the President of the United States about to land in London, the capital of our you know, strong ally, uh, the parent from whom we uh, we divorced ourselves at our at our nation's inception. Um, he thought it would be a fine idea to totally malign the mayor of London, uh, a man whose city is practically on lockdown because of Trump's visit, a city whose taxpayers are spending God knows how much money trying to safeguard this orange jerk, the, uh, the madman. And here is what he tweets, and misspelling uh, the mayor's name on top of it. The mayor is Sadiq Khan. Um, he is uh, pa uh, Pakistani. Uh, English or English Pakistani and Khan if you're a Pakistani is spelled K-H-A-N Trump spells it like a Jew who's a Khan would spell it K-A-H-N so he made a Muslim into a Jew with the misspelling on top of it and here's what he says Sadiq Khan misspelled who by all accounts has done a terrible job as mayor of London has been foolishly nasty to the visiting president of the United States. 
it never occurs to Trump to say has been visibly, has been foolishly, did I say visibly, has been foolishly nasty to me. He talks of himself increasingly uh, not as a person, but as an institution, a thing. By all accounts has done a terrible job as mayor of London and has been foolishly nasty to the visiting president of the United States. Not that the visiting president of the United States has behaved in um, in a way that any other head of state would comport himself. He is a stone-cold loser, says the President of the United States. He is a stone-cold loser who should focus on crime in London, not me. Oh, he said me there. He didn't say not on the President of the United States. I mean, this tweeted just moments before his uh, Air Force One uh, touched down. He isn't done. His chubby little fingers going uh, a mile a minute. He says, Khan misspelled, reminds me very much of our own very dumb and incompetent mayor of New York City, de Blasio, who has also done a terrible job. And then he gets in his real zinger. He reminds me very much of our dumb and um, incompetent mayor of New York City, only half his height. So, this kind of... All right. I'm still, I am still capable of incredulity when I look at something like this and think this is how the President of the United States comports himself on a world stage. This is our representative to the world. It's mind blowing. And, of course, lends credence to what Michael Wolf said, that uh, we have a madman, a child, a mad child, not a man, a mad man-child representing us. So he finishes up his tweet, only half his height. In any event, I look forward to being a great friend to the United Kingdom and am looking very much forward to my visit. Landing now, exclamation point. Over the weekend, of course, he was uh, calling uh, somebody else nasty, and that was uh, a member of the royal family, uh, Meghan, uh, now the Duchess of Sussex. He called her nasty. Just wonderful. And um, he will now insert himself. Oh, here's another tweet, by the way. He gets in and they bring him to the place he's staying in. Not Buckingham Palace, which he's probably a little miffed about, but um, some other Winfield house. Uh, and he was watching the television. And here's his next tweet. Just arrived in the United Kingdom. The only problem is that CNN is the primary source of news. 
<laughs> After watching it for a short while, I turned it off. Fake news. Very bad for U.S. Big ratings drop. This, again, is the president of the United States on a state visit that is supposed to be about marking the 75th uh, anniversary of uh, the D-Day embarkation during World War II. I'm sure he'll represent us in a much better manner in when he talks about that. I don't know. And then tomorrow he's going to 10 Downing Street and and he's going to have to do a, you know, a press conference with the outgoing Theresa May who he has pilloried time and time again and mocked. And you can bet that standing right there, he's going to essentially mock her again. He's going to insert himself into the the ugliness of uh, British domestic politics now with Brexit and uh, and May's uh, leave-taking. Unbelievable. The Speaker of the House of Commons um, says Trump... <clears throat> is not welcome in that house and will not be allowed to address the parliament. The state dinner they're having um, is being boycotted by a long list. I wonder if the mayor of uh, London's going to show. God, guys. And people still support this man. The mayor, by the way, had said in The Guardian, the uh, London newspaper, um, which this is what got Trump's wrath. He had said that Trump uses the language of the fascists of the 20th century, which is a statement of fact. And he went on to say Trump is just one of the more egregious examples of a growing global threat. The far right is on the rise around the world, threatening our hard-won rights and freedoms and the values that have defined our liberal democratic societies for more than 70 years. Um, to which the president uh, replied, nah, 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 nah. you're... You're short. You're short. That's essentially what he did. You're dumb. You're short. You got criminals in your streets. And have you by any chance been uh, privy to the interview that Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, did with a uh, with a British journalist, it is mind blowing. You know, you think about it. You don't hear Jared Kushner much, right? You see him standing there like a wax Ken doll, but you don't hear him, and um, you don't want to. Uh, he was asked 
um, about birtherism and how Trump had parlayed that into uh, his run for the presidency. And uh, he was asked, was that bir was birtherism racist? That was the question. Was birtherism racist? And Kushner said, uh, look, I wasn't really involved in that. That was a long time ago. First of all, it was not a long time ago. And he didn't answer the question. So the guy says again, was it racist? Birtherism. Was it racist? And he said again, I wasn't, I wasn't involved in that. The, the guy goes back and says, yeah, okay, but was it racist? I wasn't, he must have said, I wasn't involved in that four times, refusing to answer the question and then suggesting some bizarre thing that if you call that racist, I couldn't even, it made no sense. It was like literally made no sense. It's a whole family of crazy, stupid people. Unbelievable. Oh, God. Thanks, Ed. So Ed sent me pictures of Trump supporters outside uh, Buckingham Palace. Welcome, Mr. President. And they're wrapped in the in the flag of Great Britain. And uh, one woman holding uh, a sign saying, Sadiq Khan, spelled correctly, is not fit for high office. There you go. Well, it's nice to know that our president has his fans, uh, even overseas. God almighty. Yeah, tell me something I don't know, Barbara. Barbara just sent me a list of, while we're distracted by the, the madman, um, his administration and the people he's put uh, in office, uh, in office, I mean in the regulatory agencies of, of our government, have been so busy doing such damage. Loosening EPA regulations on air pollution, scrapping EPA rules around methane flaring and leaks, weakening fuel economy standards for auto manufacturers, rolling back federal protection of our rivers and wetlands, issuing executive orders that streamline approval for corporations to build oil and gas pipelines while limiting state governments' abilities to block them. Oh, yeah, oil drilling. He's, they've totally rolled back safety regulations there. Carbon emissions from coal plants, let's get them up there where they belong. On and on, removing the word science from the mission statement of the Environmental Protection Agency and its Office of Science and Technology. <laughs> well, how do you remove the word science from the Office of Science and Technology? It's now just the Office of Technology. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so, yeah, tell us something we don't know. 
I don't know. I want to talk. I'm going to leave this for us, if you don't mind, for a sec. And I want to talk about a life well lived. Because when we spend all our time with um, a horror show, we can, I think, lose hope. We can lose uh, we can lose a sense that there are good things going on, and um, it's important to know that we are uh, capable individually of moving things in a better direction. Obviously, we can do that with our votes with our actions. Some people act more, others talk more. And some people dedicate their lives, see their reason for being alive as a responsibility to move things forward. And that's what they do all their lives. They just keep pushing. I had the, um, I had the great joy uh, to have in my life a woman who exemplified that, uh, a friend. And I want to talk about her. Her obituary uh, appeared in yesterday's uh, Post-Gazette. And uh, she she died last week, week ago. Her name is Jan Nefke. And uh, she has, she was a great, cherished, and loved friend for many, many years. And in talking to her lifelong partner this week, I I learned things about Jan I didn't even know. She was born um, in Buffalo, and she was born into an extremely racist family. Her father was a just extraordinary racist, something I had never heard from her. He actually drove her as a child to school every day because he drove her all the way across town so that she wouldn't attend an integrated high school. And when he drove her off to college and saw black and white students together at the dorm she had been assigned to, he went right over to the administration building and got her moved. She came to Pittsburgh in 1961 and she moved here with her best friend, an African-American woman. (laughs) So much for her father's efforts to keep her from forming relationships and friendships from people whose skin was a different color than hers. 
She came to go to the University of Pittsburgh's Graduate School of Social Work. And because she was in a relationship with this African-American woman and they were trying to rent an apartment here in 1961, they were having no luck. They were turned away by racist apartment owners here. And by luck, they uh, they bumped into new uh, the wife of the publisher of the Pittsburgh Courier, the African-American magazine here, <clears throat> and uh, Jessie Van. And she found them a third-floor room in the home of a friend in the Lower Hill District. And that's where Jan first lived here in in Pittsburgh. And I I love just that part of the story, a child growing up with this horrifically racist father. And as a young woman, moving to a city, living and loving a black woman and and living in the Lower Hill District. So I, I just want to, I mean, sh- people need to know what one person can do in her life. So in 1963, Jan just graduated from <coughs> Pitt's School of um, of Social Work. She is immediately snatched up by the Pittsburgh YWCA and immediately finds herself working with, you might know this name, Molly Yard, a veteran activist, one of the founders, right, of the National Organization for Women, the first president, I believe, of the National Organization for Women, who was a Pittsburgher. So young Jan and older Molly Yard worked together, and here's what they worked on. They were organizing people in Pittsburgh to go to a march on Washington on August 28th, 1963. That was the march that you have seen so many photos and videos of That was the march that Dr. King stood at the Lincoln Memorial and gave that speech that resonates today. I have a dream. Jan and Molly Yard, (laughs) these two women, filled, get this, a seven-car train from Pittsburgh to D.C., and 14 busloads. Seven-car train and 14 busloads of people from Pittsburgh who were there. And Jan, for Jan, this moment, being there, 
hearing it in real time was the most extraordinary event of her life. Jan, when I met her, was still constantly organizing things. She helped organize a major housing conference um, to address racial discrimination in uh, Allegheny County. Uh, she was instrumental in getting the Y to be one of the first organizations in Pittsburgh to speak out against the Vietnam War. She was on the board of the Thomas Merton Center, worked closely with uh, another well-known activist, Molly Rush. The ERA, she was totally involved in that. She initiated a committee to counter Ku Klux Klan activity um, in the area. It was, and, and that group became the uh, Coalition to Counter Hate Groups. She received the National YWCA Racial Justice Award on behalf of the Pittsburgh Y. She received the National Conference of Christians and Jews Peoplehood Award for untiring efforts as a connector of people. nineteen ninety one city council declared january twenty second Jan Nefke day. I never knew that I mean, I had a Lynn Cullen day once, but I was a you know a loud you know a public radio television loudmouth, and Jan never said anything to me about beating me to uh <laughs> to this and having had a Jan Nefke day. I don't I don't know how you know she was any demonstration that has been in 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 Pittsburgh uh over the last uh, 40 years odds are Jan was not only there but uh, often had a hand in uh, organizing it She and her her partner, Ginny Hildebrand, have um, organized so many fundraisers and dinners for Planned Parenthood, for uh, the Center for Constitutional Rights, for the Humane Animal Rescue League, for the Afghan Women's Fund. I mean, they just never stopped. And Ginny will keep doing this now that, but as not with Jan at her side and and their love affair was something that was uh wonderful. My son and I vacationed with these two women uh much of uh, many many summers sharing a house. Jan was to my son a surrogate grandmother. Uh she was filled with love and never asked for any attention herself. 
She was always the quiet one. (laughs) The quiet one. Who just got things done. She left this city a better place. She left this world a better place. And I have lost a great friend as well. I, I just needed to share her with you. So, if I didn't touch on everything that was in the obituary, and if you do, um, if you haven't looked at it, uh, go and, and, and do it, just because there is a life well lived. There is a model for those of us who sink too easily into despair. Jan didn't sink into despair. She acted. What can I do? It's a lesson that I tried to <laughs> tried to take on and be more like her, but then, you know, I'm a professional yacker, and that comes more easily to me. But boy, she... Anyway, I'm, I'm sorry if that was too much, but why would it be too much? You know I do obits all the time on the show, and uh, God bless her. Although she would laugh because she was a an atheist. <laughs> God bless her. God bless you anyway, Jan. Just in case. Just in case, okay. Alrighty, so I'm just gonna be all over the place here today, if you don't mind. Um, I'm sorry, let me just check this out from Bob. Oh, I didn't see this. See, Bob, I don't watch the news on the weekends at all. And in fact, this weekend, I barely read the newspapers. I There are times when I literally can't. And I know, I mean, I should, given that I have a show like this, but I just can't. So I didn't know this. Bob says... His favorite part of Trump's weekend was when he made a surprise appearance at a church in Virginia to show his support and thoughts and prayers for the victims of the shooting in Virginia Beach. Yeah. Well. He is such an empty man empty. There's nothing in there. Just need. Need. He's not much different than those big, you know, <coughs> air-filled balloons of him. Um, except he's more dangerous. But I think he's empty. Just this constant, in, unsatiable maw, M-A-W. Just this 
chasm that cannot be filled of neediness, the need for attention, for, I don't know. I read a fascinating quote, if it were true. I don't know, but it's, it seems right on the money. This is also from, I think, Michael Wolff's second book in which he relies on Steve Bannon. But Bannon apparently said this, and, and it has such a ring of truth about it, that Trump is, such, is filled with such self-loathing. He is so insecure and internalized, I think, totally his father's um, obvious uh, maybe disdain for him. And that created this need, this constant need. But Bannon said that because he feels like this empty charlatan, when people support him, when they fall for his BS, when they aid and abet him, and that includes the people around him in the White House, he can't help it, but he begins to hate them and loathe them and find them stupid because they fell for him. So initially he demands it, his need demands it, and then his insecurity and sense that he is an empty suit, which might even be an unconscious thing in his head, um, he hates you for falling for him. Has the ring of truth, I think. Here's something I read that I didn't like and I want to pass on to you, Democrats. Oh, by the way, I was at the, a big Planned Parenthood gala Saturday night, and I saw our Lieutenant Governor Fetterman standing off by himself, looking awkward. I mean, I mean, six eight or something, right? So I mean, he's just his head is sticking up above the crowd, but. He, for a guy who's, you know, essentially the vice president of the state, he is the most awkward, socially awkward person. It's sort of like I thought that way about Richard Nixon, too. You know, how does somebody who's so clearly uncomfortable in their own skin get into a profession in which they have to be with people constantly? But anyway, there he was. And uh, also there, who I did spend a lot of time yakking with, was County Executive Rich Fitzgerald. The mayor was there. And I also spent a lot of time talking to my congressman, Mike Coyne, and his lovely wife, who I hadn't met before. like her a lot. 
And here's what I got from Coyne and Fitzgerald and another big uh, Democratic mover and shaker, uh, a guy named Brian Schreiber. Talking to all of them, this is the Democratic Party establishment, right? They really don't like the insurgent young lefties. Um, and they clearly think that there's a danger in a national election for the party to go too far to the left. So my sense, even though none of them were saying it, was that they, they're all going to support Biden. Because he's one of them. And all those other guys aren't. You know? And I told all of them, I think you're wrong. I understand why you're doing it, but I think you're wrong. So we Democrats have to understand that Biden is going to be hard to beat, I think. The only way he gets beaten is at the polls in the primaries because the establishment is clearly, I could just... You can just feel it. And I met the young woman who knocked off uh, Joe, Def- uh, Joe, not Joe, uh, what's his name, DeFazio, the old wrestler in county council. She's wonderful. So there were a lot of political people there showing their support for Planned Parenthood, which was nice. But I mentioned the Democratic establishment because there's an article in the New York Times today which underscores how much the Democratic Party establishment is unsettled by all these young upstarts, especially the ones who unseated longtime incumbents in primaries, such as... Alexandria, right, Ocasio-Cortez, who knocked off a powerful guy in the primary and now, of course, is in the House. There are others, such as Ayanna Presley, who also knocked off a white male incumbent in a primary and is now in the House. There are a lot of these stories of these young women and often women of color having knocked off white men. And we've seen this in um, the state and politics here as well, right? Even DeFazio going down to a young woman. The, the Costa guys going down to women, young women, and including a woman of color. Whoa, it's happening. And the boys that run the Democratic Party, uh, they don't like it. So there is this entity called the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, if you are running for the House or the Senate... Uh, that's the Democratic Party apparatus in the Congress that's going to funnel aid to you, uh, money to you, all that kind of 
stuff, right? Turns out the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee instituted a new rule. I think I vaguely remember hearing about it, but it's kicking in now. And that rule is is that any, let's say, consultant or advertising firm or uh, campaign uh, operative or manager who signs on to the campaign of somebody who is trying to unseat another Democrat in a primary, <clears throat> the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, says they'll be on a blacklist. They're blacklisted. Understand what that means. That means that any, anybody who wants work with Democratic uh, candidates who had helped, let's say, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or any of these other insurgent young women who got to Congress by primarying incumbents, almost all of them white men, they would find it very difficult to find any, anybody to help them. Because if you sign on to their campaign as a consultant, as a manager, as a whatever, you're going to be on this congr Democratic congressional list where no one's going to hire you. Your business is going to go down. So last week, a Democratic political consultant with long ties to the Democratic uh, campaign committee quit. She quit a senior partner position at a firm that represents, that does all the stuff you do to help Democrats get elected. And she quit because her firm agreed to comply with these new rules, barring saying that they would not conduct business, would not help a primary opponent of an incumbent Democrat. I mean, the irony here is these people call themselves Democrats, like democracy. Isn't democracy about being able to challenge at the polls and let the people decide? The woman who said, I'm out of here, she was a partner. She said, I'm gone. So she'll start her own thing and maybe, you know, who knows. She says, it is hard enough for challengers for a lot of reasons. But this policy is a bridge too far. I, she says, would like to see a majority of women in Congress and it's not going to happen with this policy. This will slow things down because the incumbents are all white men. And if it's a crime somehow to, prime, to, to challenge them in a primary, how's anyone going to unlodge, dis dislodge them?
The New York Times points out that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee uh, has created a lot of division, especially among House Democrats. If you're an incumbent, you probably think it's the greatest policy you've heard of in a long time because it means it will be very difficult for anybody to launch a challenge to you in the primaries. But a lot of the more liberal members of the Democratic uh, caucus in the House are just furious. Uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, has told people, don't give your money to the DCCC. I wouldn't anyway, because that I, I always believe in, don't give to a, an anything that then takes your money and funnels it further. I mean, it's adding too many layers. If you got a candidate you like, you give directly to the candidate. And that's what she is saying. My recommendation, if you're a small dollar donor, pause your donations to the DCCC and give directly to the swing candidates instead. Another, uh, an African-American woman who managed to um, get elected to the House said, uh, this is going to keep women like me from succeeding and getting to D.C. And she said, if I waited my turn, because that's what they're doing, say, wait till all these white men die, wait till they serve 20 terms, you know, they just keep serving, keep serving, keep serving. When, and we've seen it, when voters have a suggested change in the primary, they take it. I mean, most don't. Most of these incumbents fought off uh, challengers. But if I waited my turn, she said, I wouldn't be here. And that's the truth. So I just wanted you to, to be aware of that, to know that, that power, power, those with it like to keep it. And those with it often have more tools to keep it. And this is a case in point, that this move to hinder primary challenges in the Democratic uh, Party uh, is going to make it a lot harder for women and minorities to get in. Just saying. Just saying. Oh, pet peeve, pet peeve, pet peeve. The last time I was, um, I think the last time I was out of the country, maybe not, uh, no, it was Scotland, but the time before I was in the south of France and driving along, you know, those, you 
go up into the lower Alps and and you look down on that extraordinary Mediterranean and and there are these you know little little villages and towns many of them you know extraordinarily old and medieval sort of up there nestled in the hills and when you one of the things that just startled me when I was driving um, on those sometimes scary winding roads that, you know, if you take a wrong turn, you're dropping a real long distance uh, and ending up in the in the Mediterranean. I, uh, a sight that was so off-putting, unfortunately mars to this day my memory of how beautiful it was. And the off-putting sight was at one point I was looking down into a harbor and I I can't tell you what it might even have been Monaco I don't know and you see all these boats and even yachts and I when I say yachts I'm uh, and but you see the fishing boats and the pleasure boats and all this in the lovely little city and then there's this like outsized monstrosity um, there that takes up like the whole obliterates the 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 size the what do you call that the dimensions of of the scene everything looks like it fits and then one of these mammoth cruise ships one of these colossal I mean, multi, 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 multi-story, big, huge, polluting horror things is sitting there. And it looks so wrong. I mean, it just, you know what it looks like? It looks, it is the same sort of disconnect. Remember that big rubber ducky that was in the river here and has been in, rivers all around the world that huge monstrous yellow rubber ducky now that was funny because it was outsized and ludicrous and something you know whimsical and lovely about that the cruise ship is by itself ugly you know there's nothing sleek about it, it doesn't look like the queen mary used to look no it it's this big bloated fat it looks like a if a stink bug were to become a a cruise ship that's what it looks like to me and to see it everything you know you're looking down everything is sort of doll size proportioned and then somebody sticks this big ugly so out of proportion thing. So I hate those things. I hate them. And you know, they're dumping their garbage in the waters. They're, I wish they could be obliterated. I mean it. They're, they're an assault to anybody's, uh, I don't know, sense of beauty and natural beauty. So anyway, I see one of these monstrosities was uh, crashed into some pier in um, in Venice. 
And, you know, Venice is about to crumble anyway. There's like next to nobody who lives there anymore. It is going down and crumbling. And the idea that these hideous ships are going into Venice, they shouldn't be allowed anywhere near Venice. If that thing had crashed uh, into, uh, you know, maybe uh, 200 feet earlier, it could have taken out uh, who knows what, some extraordinary... I hate them so much. (laughs) Sorry. Don't go on one, okay? Don't go on one. That's all I can say. Uh, yeah. God, what a rogues gallery, Barbara says, accompanying the president. <laughs> is, listen to this rogues gallery of horror. Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, and Kellyanne Conway. Oh, and Stephen Miller. A horror show of grotesque, horrible human beings. I mean, Jesus, God. So, speaking of grotesque human beings, remember Jim Jordan, the horrific uh, Republican congressman, the one who's always in uh, shirt sleeves and and saying things that make you want to, well, make you think that, yes, you know, I could... I could conceivably consider homicide. Um, Jim Jordan. And I told you this is the Ohio congressman who used to be an assistant wrestling coach at Ohio State who was there while the team doctor uh, molested hundreds, (laughs) over the years, hundreds of his wrestlers some of whom went directly to him and told him and confronted him about it, and Jim Jordan did nothing. Knowledge of his allowing this kind of... I mean, my God, at Penn State, you got people going to going to jail over this. Jim Jordan says, I didn't know anything about it. Everybody knew about it, apparently. Everybody knew about it. And he just keeps saying, I didn't know, and they're lying. Suggesting that these former wrestlers saying, I told him, are Democrats. And they're just trying to destroy his good name and reputation. This is so unsettling. New York Times headline, the constituents don't care. The constituents refuse to believe that he knew anything, even though it is patently clear he did. Because these are people, these are Trump voters too, these are people that do not tolerate reality that doesn't fit comfortably in their heads. I, it's unbelievable. You read the quotes of these people. I mean, they say that it's the media trying to destroy him. 
They're trying to make us hate him. We're not falling for that. We know Jim. I went to school with his wife. Fine people. I know his family. And he's in one of these Ohio gerrymandered districts. And it's described uh, thusly. Ohio's 4th Congressional District is 90% white and shaped roughly like a duck, which is to say it's uh, gerrymandered. Its bill is made up of the western exurbs of Cleveland. One of the duck's feet are on the outskirts of Columbus and its head is just nudging Toledo. So they've gerrymandered him a district that it touches the exurbs that is really just on the... Uh, there's no urban. They didn't let one little urban voter in. They just kept skirting. And you end up with a duck. <laughs> That's what his district looks like. 90% white not close enough to abs to have any urban voters, but close enough so you got Toledo, you got Cleveland, you got Columbus, but you don't. You, they leave those to some Democrats, I guess. I guess. Listen to how one people, um, one people... <laughs> Listen to, did I just say that? Listen to how one person um, defends him. You got to understand, especially at Ohio State, it's gotten to be very progressive in its political views. I mean, things that would not be an unusual occurrence back then, now they get into a huge uproar. Even though not appropriate, I mean, people deal with it, dealt with it, and moved on. This is a person saying, you know, now, back then, if. People knew the doctor was, you know, fondling the genitals of the... And, the, you know, back then you just dealt with it and you moved on. You didn't make a big deal about it and bring disgrace down on Ohio State. You just sort of looked the other way. And, you know, these days now you have to get up into a huge uproar if a doctor is uh, fondling the genitals of uh, over 100 uh, wrestlers. That's progressive. He says, you know, now things have gotten progressive, but we ain't falling for it here. Unbelievable. I want to thank you for thanking me um, about sharing Jan's life. Um, Milt, I'll read this from you. Thank you for mentioning Jan Nefke today. I was unaware of her passing. For me, Jan was one of those people who I never really knew personally, but whose strength and influence impressed me and helped formulate my character from a young age. My first real job was as a swim instructor and lifeguard at the YWCA downtown. From 1981 to 1989, I spent two weeknights and every Saturday in that building and quickly became aware of who she was and some of the work that she was involved in doing. For me, the mere proximity to a woman so quiet 
At least she always seemed that way to me. She was. Yet determined really influenced my views on women, on same-sex relationships, and what racial relations could be in Pittsburgh. My dad served on several boards with her having to do with housing during the 70s and 80s. I never thought that she'd have any memory, memory of me at all, but she was always someone I carried in my mind and heart as a personal influence. Then about 10 years ago she came then about 10 years ago she came to visit someone at UPMC Rehab Hospital where I was the receptionist. I recognized her after not seeing her for years. And to my surprise, when she left, she asked if I'd ever done anything at the Y because I look familiar to her. I acknowledged that she remembered correctly. and We exchanged pleasantries. But I didn't take that opportunity to tell her of how she and that group of women who worked in the Y at that really influenced me. News of her death makes me sad, but your remembrance of her is heartening. I'm glad she touched you personally the way she influenced my formative years. Thank you. Thank you, Milton. And I will make sure that Jenny sees this. It will gladden her heart. And Barbara, thank you um, as well for your kind words. Okay. Uh, that's it. I'll see you tomorrow. My sister, I think, should be joining us. Okay. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.